Jesus on the way? And what does that look like? And what happens? And what is the journey that Jesus calls us on? And so there's no better place to start than at the beginning, as Jesus calls his first disciples. And we're going to be there for in John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. And if you have a Bible with you and you like to have it open in front of you, if you like to pull out your phone, then that's great. Go ahead. Do that now. If you don't, that's okay. It'll be on the screen as we read the passage. And we're going to do that together. And our tradition here is that we stand for the reading of the Word. We do this for a few reasons. Uh, me reading the Scriptures is the best thing you're going to hear from me this morning. Uh, because the Word of God is powerful and amazing. It's also a way to participate for each of us to honor the Word as we hear it this morning. So John chapter 1, 35 to 51. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following him and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good from there come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do ask that you open us to your word this morning and to the work of your spirit. We want to know you more. And we want to follow you more closely, Lord. Pray that you would make that possible through your word through our worship, and through this community. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, some introductory stuff first. Discipleship was a recognized paradigm or activity or position in Jesus' day. Rabbis, that is teachers, would be surrounded by disciples. And a disciple is just a learner. 
That's literally what the word means. It means learner. And these disciples would serve the rabbi, and they would walk with him through his days, and by being near him as he taught and as he lived and as he went through his normal activities, they would hope to learn from him wisdom for how to live life well, which was, generally speaking, the primary goal of discipleship. Yes, they learned lots of information along the way, and that was important too. But what they were really after was wisdom. Now, there was a pretty normal process for becoming a disciple. Rabbis did not seek out students. Oh, I lost. Oh, there we go. Rabbis didn't seek out students. Um, students sought out rabbis. That was the direction that it went. And if a rabbi was particularly wise or well-spoken or popular, um, he would have lots of people seeking to be his disciples. And so it wasn't uncommon for a rabbi to require you to pass some kind of test. You might have to prove your determination by waiting for a really long time. You might have to prove your knowledge by showing how much of the scriptures you had memorized, um, and so on and so forth. And if the rabbi judged you worthy then you could be welcomed as his disciple. And, in all likelihood, have to work your way up from the bottom. So the first things you were doing as his disciple, you were serving him, and you would take on the lowliest tasks as the newest and potentially the youngest disciple until you had worked your way up to when you kind of graduated, when you were no longer a disciple, but you were a rabbi yourself. This was the normal process for becoming a rabbi. And one of the things that's really cool in this passage is how much Jesus breaks from all of those traditions. He keeps the positions the same, right? He's still approached as rabbi, and he still accepts disciples, but he doesn't make them pass a test. He goes so far as to seek out Philip rather than having Philip seek him out. And in other Gospels, he calls a number of other disciples as well. And rather than having them serve him, as you read on in the Gospel, you'll find Jesus saying to them, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And each of these differences are very significant because each of them comes out of the character of God. Jesus accepts anyone as his disciples. He accepts fishermen. He accepts a tax collector. These are people nobody wants to hang out with. But God, all throughout scriptures, is the God of the lowly, of the widow and the orphan, of the poor and the outcast. Jesus accepts his disciples through unearned grace rather than through them passing a test. God does the same. Again, all throughout scriptures, we just spent all the fall in Exodus, and they don't have to do anything to earn their salvation because this is who God is. And lastly, God didn't create us and he doesn't call us as servants, but as co-laborers, as people who work alongside of him. And we see all that already in John chapter 1. And this is the context for the call of the first disciples. That Jesus, before they even really start to get to know him, is already visibly a radically different kind of rabbi than anyone who they would have run into the rest of their lives. He's doing it all differently. And every time he speaks, and you'll see this as we walk through John, people are amazed. They're, Who is this guy? 
How does he teach like this? But from word to action, in, in all sorts of ways, Jesus stands out. And so it's no wonder that he attracts attention. He also has a great herald. We start the story with John. And John has disciples, right? We don't, we don't get to know about that story. We don't get to hear about how John called his disciples and what that was like. But he has disciples. He has people who have come to learn from him. But now Jesus is on the scene. And when John sees Jesus, he says, look, the Lamb of God. Look, the one who's greater than me, whose sandals I'm not fit to untie. Look, the one who has come to take away the sin of the world. And what he's doing is he's pointing everybody who will listen to stop being his disciples and go follow Jesus. And the story here begins with two of John's disciples taking him up on that invitation as they leave John to follow Jesus. So there's your foundation for what's going on here and what discipleship is. And we're going to walk through this, and we're going to go four, three, two, one. I know you're supposed to go the other way around, but hear me out. We're going to look at four disciples, the four people who come to follow Jesus. As they learn Jesus' initial three titles in following two invitations and answering one question. The four disciples... Three titles of Jesus, two invitations, and one question. And what we're going to see as we do this is we're going to see what the journey of discipleship looks like. It's not exactly the same for every one of us. There's no formula. Jesus meets each of these four men uniquely, but they do follow a pattern. For each of them, as they encounter Jesus... They receive something or they see something that draws them on. Jesus meets them where they're at. And this is the same pattern for us. God doesn't say, I'm waiting for you up on top of the mountain, and if you can make it up here, then then you can be with me. God comes to us. God seeks us out. God meets us where we are. And in that place, he gives us good gifts, amazing gifts but he's never satisfied to leave us there. He does want us to keep going forward, to stay with the metaphor, climb the mountain. He just doesn't require that we do it alone. He calls us to do it with him. And so discipleship begins, you encounter Jesus where you're at, and he does something amazing, but then he calls you forward and you learn. You learn more of who he is, and you learn more of who you are, and you learn... Where God is, what God is doing, and what he's calling you to. And we're going to see that in the four people, in the three titles, in the two invitations, and in the one question. So the four people. There's four disciples who begin following Jesus in this passage. Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And each of them is met uniquely and dealt with as an individual. There is no one-size-fits-all for discipleship. This is also true of evangelism. And I do want to say... And I find this really encouraging because I'm not a gifted evangelist. But the way that John presents this, evangelism and discipleship, they're part of one spectrum. They're not two different activities, one taking place way over here for the people who really get it and are good, and one taking place over here for the people who are out and don't know. It's one spectrum. And when you go from one to the other, that journey is different for each of us. But evangelism is just what we call the beginning of that journey, the first part of that encounter, the first time the name of Jesus comes to you or someone says, come see. 
And then you come to see, and you begin to learn, and you begin to understand who Jesus is, and you have to decide, am I going to stay, and am I going to follow, and am I going to put my faith in him? But each step of the way follows one from the other, and they fit. So each of these people, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, they start out, and they're in the realm of evangelism. They're not following Jesus yet. The first word comes from John. He's speaking to two of his disciples, and we learn that one of them is Andrew. And he says to him, look, the Lamb of God. Look, this is the guy. And Andrew's response, along with his friend, is to go check it out. Let's see. Let's see, what, let's see who the guy is. Let's see what, what he's got, what he has to say. And Andrew is presented as the first follower of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And I, this too I find encouraging because Andrew is really a guy who lives in the shadow of someone else. Every time you meet Andrew, he's Peter's brother. He's Peter's younger brother, probably his smaller brother, certainly his less brash brother. Because Peter's the guy who's always out there and ready to go and ready to put his foot in his mouth because he's not slowing down to think about it. Um, but that's okay. But the journey starts not with Peter, it starts with Andrew. And lots of us live in the shadow of other people in our lives. Jesus sees you there. It's okay to be in that place. He still recognizes you and he still calls you out. By the time Andrew has spent one day with Jesus, he has himself turned into an evangelist. He doesn't yet know the full story. He doesn't understand everything there is to say about Jesus, but he understands enough that we're told that the first thing he does is go to his brother Peter and say, we found the Messiah. Now, that to me is incredible. That that's all it took. I, I really wonder what happened in that time period. Like, what happened between... Look, the Lamb of God, Rabbi, we want to know where you're staying. Peter, we found the Messiah, right? Lamb of God, teacher, Messiah, that's quite a journey. And those are the three titles that we're going to look at when we get to that section. But he comes to his brother, he says, we found the Messiah, and he takes Peter to Jesus. He brings him along. And Jesus looks at Peter, and whereas he saw Andrew in the shadow of his brother and recognized Andrew for who he is. He meets Peter in a different way. He looks at Peter and he calls out his potential. He says, your name is Simon, but you will be called Cephas, which is Peter, and it means the rock. You will be called the firm one, the strong one, the foundation. Again, how many of us don't want that? Of course we want that. Someone to look at us and recognize who we could be, what we're capable of, the gifts that we have. It's enough for Peter. We don't even hear from him in this passage. We just hear Jesus. We found the Messiah. Peter follows his brother Andrew. Jesus looks at him and he calls him out, and that's it. <laughs> from then on, he's following Jesus. Again, it's incredible the effect that Jesus has on these people. So they're with him, and a day passes, and the next day, Jesus is leaving, and on his way out, he finds Philip. He seeks out Philip. Philip is one of the disciples we don't know much about. 
He doesn't appear a lot in the story. He's not one of the three main guys, Peter, John, and James. Um, And every time he does appear, he's basically in over his head. But again, think about that. Here's ordinary Philip, just another guy from Bethsaida. And Jesus looks for him. Jesus seeks him out. And again, that's enough. That he was sought out by an amazing rabbi who says, follow me. And he's in. But again, that, to me, that speaks to the heart. Everyone in here, we want to be wanted. We desire to be desired. We would love to be sought out. And some of the most important people in our lives are the people who have done that with us, who have sought us out, who want us. And that's Jesus for each of us. And that's how he meets Philip. Finally, Philip, like Andrew, immediately becomes an evangelist. I don't know what Jesus is doing with these guys, that within a day, they're going and telling their friends that they've found the Messiah, but that's what he does. He finds Nathanael, and he is speaking to Nathanael from Old Testament biblical background. He says, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and the one that the prophets spoke of. It's the Messiah that he's using. He's just saying, we found the guy that's written about, well, who are they writing about? They're writing about the Messiah. Moses predicts that one day, one like him will come and he will be the king and he will rule over Israel. And the prophets predict the same thing. And it seems that Philip is approaching Nathaniel like this because Nathaniel is the kind of guy who knows his stuff. His response indicates that, though it also is quite scornful. (laughs) Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, Philip names him, and Nathaniel's response, Nazareth? No way, nothing good comes from Nazareth. That's slum town, man. There's no play, there's no, there's no, there's no way that happens, right? Later on, some of the Pharisees will say the same thing, like, check the prophets. That's not how it works. It's supposed to come from Bethlehem, um, which of course is where Jesus is from, but it's not where he grows up, and so that's not what his name is. He's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel is your classic skeptic. This sounds ridiculous, Philip. Do you understand what you're saying? People have been saying that the Messiah is coming for generations. We have seen them killed by the Romans, Philip. That's what happens to people calling themselves Messiah. Um, Most of us wouldn't know this, but Jesus isn't even the first Jesus to say he's the Messiah. Within the lifetime of some of these men, there had been someone else with the name Jesus saying, I'm the one, and the Romans killed him. So, no, Philip, you have not found the one. (laughs) I'm sorry. But Philip says, come and see. Just, Just come and check it out, right? Like, what does it hurt? And Nathaniel's skepticism doesn't stop him from looking. And that's good. Again, I find each of these men encouraging because Nathaniel's skepticism is not rebuked. He's not told to get rid of his doubts and just have faith. He's not ignored because he has questions. He says, come see. And then Jesus almost teases him out of his skepticism. I love the exchange that follows. But before I say that, there is another kind of skepticism. And I don't even know if skepticism or doubt is the right word for it. It's the kind that won't come and see, that won't look. 
that won't check or hear or listen. And that will stop people from coming and seeing Jesus. Um, and that's sad. But we still have to meet those people in that place and draw them out. And Jesus does that to Nathaniel. Again, Jesus speaks first, as he did with Peter. He sees Nathaniel approaching, and he says, and it's almost like a declaration. It's like, here, here is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit, no guile, nothing false. It's quite complimentary to be called a true Israelite is a, is a big deal for Jews in this time period because the question was running around about who was actually a true Israelite and what made you that. And to be told that there is no deceit in you, nothing false, that you are a person of integrity. Again, great compliment. Nathaniel, ever, ever humble, how do you know me? <laughs> of course I am. Um, I, I don't know what his attitude actually was. But he, but he does say, like, how do, you, how do you know me? And Jesus says, well, I saw you. I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, he's not saying, like, I walked by and I noticed you under the fig tree, and that's how I notice you. Because you don't walk by seeing someone sitting under a tree and immediately know their character. That's not how it works. Jesus is speaking of prophetic insight. He's speaking of the fact that he knows Nathaniel. He knew him before he saw him with his physical eyes. And Philip is amazed. And we see this in his declaration because he's gone from nothing good can come from Nazareth to you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Yeah, it is wow. Again, an amazing journey. He's saying the same thing that each of them has said after they meet and spend time with Jesus. You are the Messiah, the Christ. He has walked through those same three titles that we've run into in this passage a few different times. The Jesus is Savior. That's where they begin. The Lamb of God. This is salvation language. And we're moving into these three titles now. Lamb of God is a phrase that John used and likely taught to his disciples, and it references two Old Testament passages. First of all, it references the Exodus, and we spent lots of time on this in the fall. It's talking about the Passover, the night that the angel of the Lord comes through, killing all of the firstborn of Egypt, and the people of Israel are told that if they are going to be saved, they need to take a lamb, and they need to kill it, and they need to put its blood on the lintel and the doorposts, and the, the angel of death will pass over and not take anyone from their home. This is the Lamb of God. He's also picking up on the language of the prophet Isaiah, who speaks about the suffering servant who will come to save the people and who will be led like a lamb to the slaughter. He's the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. And John, earlier on in chapter 1, John the Baptist specifies that. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is often, though not always, how we first encounter God. It's how the Israelites first encounter God in Egypt. First, he saves them. Then he teaches them who he is. And then he calls them to be his people and to allow him to be their king. It doesn't have to, it's not that it has to walk that way. The first time Peter hears about Jesus, Andrew's already calling him the Messiah right? So some of us hear of him first as king, 
Some of us hear of him first as teacher. Some of us hear of him first as savior. But almost all of us, the first time God acts in our lives, he is working salvation. He is lifting us up. He is calling us out. He is rescuing us. That is going to be most of our stories when we begin to examine them. We may have heard about him lots, but the moment that he becomes real, when we actually experience his presence, is a moment of rescue. Again, not for all of us, but for many, many of us. But we don't stay there. We don't just stay having been rescued. Thank you for lifting me up. I will now lay on the beach and relax. I'm not drowning anymore. I'm good. No, once he saved us, then he says, now come and learn. Come and follow. And that's where the second title comes in. When Andrew approaches Jesus, who he has been told is the Lamb of God, he says to him, Rabbi. He calls him teacher. And this is very appropriate because one of the key ministries of Jesus is teaching. One of the key activities of God in our life is teaching, illuminating our minds, helping us to understand and see who he is so that we can live accordingly, giving us wisdom so that we can live well, leading us in his way. But again, he doesn't stay there. Because after they've spent a day with him, they're all saying the same thing. We have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. We have found the one that Moses spoke about, the one the prophets spoke about. And we've all heard these words before, Messiah, Christ. Um, But sometimes we use them like a name, Jesus Christ. That's not a name, it's a title. Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. It means king. That's what it means. Savior and Christ are two different words, Um, though, of course, as our king, Jesus is also our savior. The Messiah is the long-expected king of Israel who will come to rescue the people of God from their plight and put them back into the place of honor that they are meant to occupy. This is what they are saying when they say, we have found the Messiah. This is why Nathaniel, who's always a little bit wordier than everyone else, doesn't just say, you're the Messiah. He says, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. It's the same titles. He's just using different words to say the same thing. And as we spend time with Jesus, we see that we have not been saved by just anyone. And we are not learning from just anyone but we have been privileged to be let into the presence of the king of all the universe, of all creation. And and what I think is part of the journey for these guys is that you you, you meet him and you see him and you see that he's seeking people out and he's accepting fishermen and tax collectors as disciples and, and he's not rich. He's poor. He doesn't have a place to stay. Like, he's not going to look particularly wealthy. And, and all of these things, and, and they're fine, and he's a good teacher, and it, it's no problem. And then you meet him, and you spend time with him, and you're like, wait a second. But you're the Messiah. And you have to step back and line all that stuff up again. Well, how, is, how are you the king? Kings don't seek people out. They wait for them to come to them. Kings don't hang out with fishermen. What are you doing? Right? And it doesn't, it doesn't work. And, and you see that as you read the Gospels and as people encounter Jesus. And you see that even in the disciples who spend years with him, there's this constant confusion. How can you be you? How can you be him and him at the same time? Um, but that's, 
that's what Jesus wants. Because that creates this tension where they have to start rethinking everything they know about kingship and rethinking everything they know about lordship. And then that pours out into rethinking about, okay, but now how, did, how do I live? Because the track was pretty clear before you came along, Jesus. Just work your way up the ladder. Get as high as you can. Lord it over as many people as possible. Take care of number one. But, but that's not how you live. And you're supposed to be my teacher. And you're the king. And it, it takes a lifetime to kind of start sorting this stuff out. And it's supposed to. That's the journey of discipleship. That's why they start in one place and they end in another and they're still not done. That's why the first invitation is come and see. And the second invitation is follow me. Because it takes time for them to do this. And those are the two invitations. We're moving into that section now. We've got four people who begin to see Jesus in his three positions that he occupies as they accept two invitations. And the first invitation for all of them is come and see. They follow Jesus. What do you want? Rabbi, where are you staying? Come, you'll see. Right? Andrew goes to Simon Peter. We found the Messiah. Come, bring and see, right? Um, Philip gets called, and then he goes to Nathaniel, and Nathaniel's skeptical, and what does Philip say to him? Come and see. And this is the first invitation for all of us. This is what it means to be an evangelist. The disciples and John give us a great example. John gives us the example of someone who's saying, look, look, the, the Lamb of God, right? And we get to do that when we see God at work in other people's lives. We get to say, look, that's God at work in your life. We also get to say, come and see. Come and see God at work in my life, in my family, in our church, in our community. Come and see. Now, the convicting part of that, of course, is that you have to ask the question, if there's any, is there anything for someone to come and see? And if there isn't, then maybe you're a little further back in the journey than you thought. And, and that's okay, because God will meet you there. Um, but there should be something to say to people, come and see. Jesus isn't satisfied to leave his disciples just looking, though. And it doesn't take long before the invitation shifts from come and see to follow me. And that's that first moment of decision. We all have to check things out before we can make a decision. And Jesus knows that and he leaves space for that. He doesn't tell them to make a decision before they see. They get to spend the day with him. They get to have time with him. They get to get to know him. And then they're called to follow. And that's the decision to spend more time with Jesus intentionally. It's one thing to, to check something out. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see what that's like. I'm going to see what skiing is like. I'm going to go out. I'm going to watch a couple YouTube videos. Maybe I'll take a lesson. It's another thing to sign up for a 12-week course, to buy a season's pass, to decide that this is something you're going to do for at least a time period, right? And that's the invitation to follow. You've seen me today. Do you want to follow me for a little while? Now, lots of times we use that invitation of coming and following as that's the final invitation, but that isn't the case here. John's gospel is very interesting. It is not until John chapter 2, when Jesus turns water into wine, that we are told that his disciples put their faith in him. 
In other words, first they came to see. Then they decided to follow him, to hang out with him, to spend more time with him. And then later, they put their faith in him. They trusted him and gave him their allegiance. And that's the same journey we get to walk. And it's the same journey we get to invite other people on. And there's no good trying to make somebody go through that really, really fast. Lots of us need time. Now, it's okay if somebody does go really fast. There's a difference between Philip's journey and Nathaniel's journey, right? Philip hears Jesus say, follow me, and he's in. Nathaniel hears about the Messiah, and he's got some convincing. Okay, fine, no problem. But don't try to push someone like they have to be further along than they are. They don't. God meets the people who come and see. God meets the people who spend time with him and begin to follow. And he calls us into a life of faith. And each of us has to make that decision at some point. And there are people in these stories who only get to the following and later leave. There are people who only come to see, and then that's it. They're done. And we will run into people like that in our lives as well. We have to leave that room for the Spirit to work because we can't make anybody jump through these hoops. You can't make someone come and see. You can't make someone follow. And you cannot make someone place faith in Jesus. And so from a biblical perspective, you have this spectrum again, right? You have the spectrum of where do you meet Jesus? As Savior? As teacher? As King? Where are you in the journey of these invitations? Are you just checking it out? You're more than welcome, and that's awesome. At some point, you're going to hear the call, follow me, and you're going to have to make that decision. And at some point, you're going to hear the call, trust in me, give your allegiance to me, and you're going to have to make that decision too. In the midst of those invitations, there's one question that runs through this whole passage. And that is the question, what do you seek? What do you seek? The initial encounter with Jesus, with Andrew and the other disciple of John, it reads very innocuously, very day-to-day. Look, the Lamb of God, well, let's go see. And they follow him. Ah, but that's not an accidental word choice. John knows what he's doing when he writes this gospel, and he wants you to come back to this. Just like the disciples come back to Jesus after they realize he's the king, and they're like, how are you the king when you're doing all this stuff? You keep reading the gospel, and you come back, and you're like, wait a second. They followed Jesus? Hmm. Turning around, Jesus sees them following, and he says, and many translations say, what do you want? But the actual wording is, what do you seek? Again, it's not accidental. Seek and you will find, right? Jesus uses this language in his teaching. And then they they ask this question. Again, it seems so normal. Where are you staying? Now, this sounds a little stalkerish to us today, but they didn't have social media. They can't ask him for his phone number. They're asking him where he's staying so they know where to find him, right? In the same way that you would say, can I, can I, you know, friend you on Facebook? Can I get your cell phone number? It's, it's a question of contact. It's a question of, John, our rabbi, says amazing things about you, and we would like to know where you're at so that we can check you out, so that we can come and see. Um, so where are you staying? But again, the language is a little bit different than that. Where, where, are you, where do you abide? 
asks Andrew. Where do you abide? This is language again. If you follow through the Gospel of John, you get to John teaching his disciples, or Jesus teaching his disciples in the upper room, and what does he say? He says, abide with me, and I will abide with you. I am the vine, and you are the branches, and he who abides in me bears much fruit. And he talks for a long time about our need to abide with God, to dwell with God. Well, that question is here. Where are you abiding? And what's Jesus' answer? He doesn't give them his address. He says, come and see. The light of the world, as we've been introduced by John, the author of the gospel, earlier in this chapter, the light of the world says to them, come and see. Right? Every line of this first encounter is very intentional in terms of John's authoring it. And that question in the middle what do you seek? This is the question that each of us must wrestle with. Because as we get to know Jesus, we are continuously challenged in getting to know ourselves. Every one of these four disciples found in Jesus something that I know they wanted. Andrew recognized despite living in the shadow of his brother. Peter, Simon Peter, recognized for who God had made him to be. Philip sought out, desired, wanted. Nathaniel recognized, honored in his skepticism, and yet at the same time told that his skepticism maybe wasn't as strong as he thought, because Jesus says, you believe because I saw you under the fig tree? That's all it took? Oh, my friend, my friend, you've got so much more in store for you than that. You thought you were skeptical now, just wait. Um, but each of them is met and given something amazing that if you had asked them, they would have said, I want this. And yet they are also called to so much more. Jesus doesn't seem to be just speaking to Nathanael at the end of this passage. He begins speaking to Nathanael, you believe because I saw that you were under the fig tree. Well, you're going to see a lot more than that. But then he adds, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What do you really seek? It's a strange ending to this passage for most of us, but as soon as you realize which Old Testament verses Jesus is referencing here, it starts to make a lot of sense. He's talking about two different things. He's talking about, on the one hand, in Genesis chapter 28, when Jacob is traveling and he falls to sleep with his head on a rock, and in the night he has a dream of angels ascending and descending upon the rock on which he sleeps. And he wakes up and he realizes that he's been sleeping on holy ground, that this is the place where God is. He calls it Bethel, the home of God. This is the place where heaven and earth are joined. This is the place where what is normally so far away and so hidden is present. The other passage Jesus is referencing comes from the title, the Son of Man. It's from Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of God's judgment brought upon the evil empires of the earth, and he destroys them. And in their place, he raises up one like a son of man who has been trampled by those empires, and he puts him in charge of the kingdom of God, which, and, he, and he declares that the Son of Man's reign will be an everlasting reign full of goodness and peace. 
Jesus brings these two things together, and what's he saying? He's saying, you are going to see that I am the presence of God with you, that I am the place where angels ascend and descend. I am the open heaven. I am the one who brings together man and God. And he means this quite literally because he's fully human and fully divine. But he also means it to say what Jacob experienced in a dream, you get to experience for real. And where is this happening? It's happening on the suffering king of all the kingdom of God. That's what you're going to see. So what do you really seek? Because what Jesus is going to call you to is the presence and the reign of God. The presence and the kingdom of God. That's what he's calling you to. And he calls each of us to seek that. Think about his Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these other things that you think you need, they'll be added to you too. What do you seek? It's okay if your answer today isn't the presence and reign of God. That wasn't what their answer was. Not yet. But Jesus is telling them at the very beginning of their journey where he's going to take them. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It means to walk into the presence of God and to live out his rule on earth. And that sounds really cool, but don't forget that it meant Jesus died on a cross, which is still pretty awesome, <laughs> and we're grateful that he did. I just want to say that because sometimes we think, oh, that means everything's going to be good. It will be good, better than you could imagine. That doesn't mean it will be suffering-free. <laughs> doesn't mean it will be easy. doesn't mean it will be painless. It means that all of those things will be taken up into the presence and kingdom of God. It's a pretty cool picture. There's a, thank you. <laughs> There's a lot here. Let me summarize where I started. It's about discipleship and evangelism, about recognizing that spectrum and how God meets us where we're at and calls us forward. And so the challenge this morning for each of us is twofold. First of all, what's the next step? If you've only come to see, then I would invite you to consider following. And I do that in the same way Jesus does. It's not a final decision. It's a decision to be intentional. It's a decision to try out getting to know Jesus. And if you're going to make that decision this morning, come talk to me or one of the other people you've seen up here, and we can help you know what that means. If you're already following, but you've never made the decision of faith, so you've been checking out Jesus you spent some time with him, you've spent some time in his word, you've spent some time with his people here or in other places, then the invitation to the next step is the invitation of faith and allegiance to take Jesus as your Lord. This fealty language, it's unfamiliar to many of us. We don't live in kingdoms anymore. But that means he's the one you obey. He's the one you're committed to. He's the one who gets to set the pattern and the tone and the rules and all the goodness that comes with that because Jesus is so awesome. Now, wherever you are on that journey, the second challenge 
is to invite others to come too. To be willing to say to other people, come and see. And you don't have to lie. If you're not sure that Jesus is the king, but you know he's an awesome teacher, invite, Je- invite people to come meet Jesus the awesome teacher. He's that. He's much more than that, but he's that. And he won't disappoint on that invitation. None of the disciples in this passage give an invitation that captures the fullness of who God is. God still meets them. You don't have to worry as you invite others along that you don't have it perfect, that you don't know what to say, that you don't have all the answers. You're in very good company. None of us do, and neither did those first disciples. It's Jesus who gives them the title Son of Man, and it's very clear from the rest of the gospel that it takes them a long time to figure out what he's talking about. So it's okay if you're not at the end of the journey. You don't have to be to invite others to come with you. Let me pray as you consider where you are in those challenges. Lord God, I thank you. I thank you that you are awesome. I thank you for the, way, for the ways that you met Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel. And I ask that you would meet each of us, not in the same way, because we're not the same people, but in the same goodness, where we need you with the things that we so desperately desire and long for. I also pray that you wouldn't leave us there, but that you would call us higher. Call us into your presence, Lord God, and into your kingdom, and show us what that means. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, we jump from the beginning of the story to the end, which is always fun to do on a Sunday morning, and I mean that. I'm not being sarcastic. Um, Because, and I referenced this, I said, where did this take Jesus? It took him to the cross. But it doesn't take him there for his sake. It takes him there for ours. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we get to celebrate that and to remember that, to be convicted by that and given joy by that in celebrating the Lord's Supper. On the night Jesus was betrayed, they're celebrating Passover. They're celebrating the very night that gives him his title. And he picks up the bread and he says, this is my body given for you. Whenever you eat this, do so in remembrance of me. And he picks up the cup, and he blesses it, and he gives thanks. He says, this cup is the new covenant written in my blood. Whenever you partake of this, do so in remembrance of me. And so we get to come together this morning and do just that, to remember Jesus' giving of his body for us. And Jesus giving us the new covenant in his blood. And that's what you're invited to take part in when you take that step of faith and that step of allegiance, is the covenant of Jesus Christ, a covenant of grace where you don't have to earn your way in, where he came for you to seek you out and to call you to be a co-laborer in his kingdom. If you have taken that step of faith this morning, then please come and partake with us. How this works here is we have people at the end of either aisle, and they're going to have the tray with the bread and the cup, and we're going to call you forward from the back to the front, so the back rows come out first, and you come and you you partake. They're going to give you the bread, and they're going to give you a cup. And you can take immediately and partake. Um, You can carry them back to your seat. You can be meditative, prayerful, thoughtful, um, 
whatever you need to do in this time in order to honor the Lord Jesus and to remember what He has done. Before you come forward to do that, I call our communion service forward, and I'm going to do that now, and we serve one another. And there's a principle behind this. It's that you need the fullness of God, not us. Whatever we give you, we want to give to you from His fullness and His grace. You don't need me. You need Jesus. And so we serve one another, and we serve the worship team, and then we call you forward. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your body and your blood. Thank you for the cross and your resurrection. Thank you, God, that you come to us, that while we are still enemies, you die for us, that we might be reconciled, that we might be saved, that we might be renewed and remade in your image. Lord, as we come forward to celebrate this and to remember this, may you deepen our understanding and deepen our love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.